What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. The following episode is part of the Off the Chain automation series, sponsored by IOTA. The goal of this special series is to explore the intersection of distributed ledger technology and automation, specifically around digital currencies, digital wallets, and machine-to-machine transactions. My core belief is that every stock, bond, currency, and commodity will eventually be digitized, and distributed ledger technology will empower the full potential of automation to be realized. IOTA is the sponsor of the automation series. Their mission is to support the research and development of new distributed ledger technologies, including IOTA Tangle. The IOTA Foundation encourages the education and adoption of distributed ledger technologies through the creation of ecosystems and the standardization of these new protocols. You can find out more about the automation series and IOTA in the show notes. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Richard Soley is an American computer scientist and businessman and chairman and CEO of the Object Management Group Incorporated. He is also executive director of the Cloud Standards Customer Council and executive director of the Industrial Internet Consortium managed by the OMG. In this conversation, we discuss the importance of technology consortiums, his past experience with interconnected machines and devices, where cryptocurrencies fit in, and how automation is set to transform the IoT space as a whole. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. All right, guys, bang, bang. I've got Richard here. Super excited to have this conversation. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this, sir. It's my pleasure to be here, whatever bang, bang means. <laughs> if, uh, if I start every episode with bang, bang, it, uh, it gets everyone focused on what we're doing. Uh-huh. So that, that's what I do. As long as it works. Uh, Listen, you've uh, you, you've been in and around technology for uh, for, for a few decades now, and and uh, are probably one of the more experienced people that we've brought on to uh, the podcast. I'm super excited to have this conversation. Let's maybe start with uh, your background and kind of how you got your career started, and then we can move into some of the things that you're doing today. Sure, fine, Anthony. Uh, I have to tell you, I never planned my career such as it is, but it's been an interesting one, and I'm not not complaining. While getting a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in computer science from a small engineering school on the river in, in Massachusetts, I um, I started I started or helped to start five companies, three of which did what startups normally do, which is find a cliff and then jump. Uh, one of which was mildly successful. AI Architects was one of the first AI startups in the '80s, and the last of which was called PictureTel, the first successful picture telephone company, which is now part of Polycom. So that's that. That was that was real fun. But uh, what was missing was what to do with these distributed objects that people were all talking about in the late '80s. So we started a consortium, which was a very popular thing to do in the late '80s. Many consortia were started. Not many are still around. We're, we've been around for 30 years. What we decided to do very quickly was set standards in distributed objects with what we then called the Corbis standard. Then we moved into modeling languages and the UML language, which everyone in computer science knows. Uh, is one of our key standards as well. But now OMG develops standards in 30 different vertical markets, retail systems, military systems, command and control, satellite control, all sorts of things. 
Um, and if, you, if you've got a mobile phone, you've got a corporate standard, you've got an OMG standard. If you use the telephone system in any other way, every telecom switch in the world uses our standards. Every banking system, every robot, uh, every retail point of sale, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been mildly successful as well in, in our 30 years. I think it's important to realize that the purpose of standards is to make possible interoperability and portability. I want to build a solution and run it on multiple systems, and I want multiple systems to be able to talk to each other. That's, that's all we're asking for. I want to be able to plug my device into the wall as easily as I plug my device into the wall in most countries. That varies from country to country, so there are multiple standards, but there are only about five or six, which is not too bad. It makes it possible to plug in my, uh, my razor just about anywhere. So in the, in, the, in the early 2000s, we were approached by a group of companies that wanted to build um, knowledge and service-oriented architecture, not standards, but they wanted to do um, knowledge capture in using service-oriented architecture, SOA. My initial reaction was, no, we don't do that. We're a standards organization. My later reaction was an understanding and realization that what we did was we managed ecosystems. We helped people figure out what they wanted to deliver, and they, they then delivered that in an open, neutral, international fashion. We've been doing that for, for 20 years now. And I think we're quite successful at it. Most successfully, the Consortium for Information and Software Quality and a consortium called the Industrial Internet Consortium, IIC, which builds large industrial IoT solutions all over the world. We've got them in Germany, in France, in India, in Japan, in China, in the United States, and so forth. Just to prove out how you build industrial IoT systems, not is your refrigerator out of milk, but is your CNC machine in the, in the, uh, in the factory down? Or is your, what, is your building in use? For example, we have a large uh, smart building outside, outside of uh, Tokyo. And that has been a tremendous success with two, between two and 300 companies now building those systems all over the world. There are about 30 very large systems, 10 to 50 million euro in size. And uh, we learned a huge amount about how you build industrial IoT systems and published the results in our, in our Journal of Innovation. That was probably more of a bite of an answer than you wanted. No, listen, it's fantastic. Well, one of the things that I'm personally interested in, uh, so I'm assuming other people are interested in, is this idea of standards, right? You, you, you touched a little bit on um, why they're important, but maybe just talk about like what exactly is a standard and, and how do you come uh, through a framework to establish a standard um, and then either enforce or, or kind of make sure that people are following them? That's a really good question. You know, a standard, what, is, what a standard is, uh, abstractly, is pretty simple and straightforward. I want to be able to plug an electrical device into the wall. Anywhere in the U.S., I can do that with a, a standard two flat blades electrical connection anywhere in the U.S. Unfortunately, not the same in Europe, which uses two round poles. And there are, in fact, three different diameters of those two round poles. So there are multiple standards within that standard. But it means a way that the, the end user of a, of a solution can connect to the vendor of a solution in, in a way that that's doesn't worry about where the, who, who built the, the product. You want that from software as well. I want my air traffic control systems to talk to each other. I want my ATM to talk to whatever bank I happen to be happen to have my money in, regardless of the whether it's the bank I've got my money in. I want my uh, um, I want my uh, point of sale system to work together with any printer, any any uh, front end that I've got, regardless of who built it. Um, so vendors, of course, are going to try to lock you in quite often. Not all. 
I think vendors understand the value of having choice and they want to give choice to their end users, but end users especially want to be able to have to choose based on price, quality, um, support, etc. And the only way they're going to get that choice is with portability and, and interoperability that comes from standardization. I wish I could tell people you've got to use this standard, you must use it, but that doesn't work. It never works. It's been tried by governments for, for uh, thousands of years and has never succeeded. And certainly not going to succeed with a, a private not-for-profit company called the Object Management Group or the effort that we've gotten in the IIC to, to build test beds. So what we've got to do is show that we've, we've come up with a better solution and the choice, allowing choice that comes from a standard is making it possible to build a larger market. It's about having a, a, a piece of a larger pie rather than a larger piece of the pie. I think quite often vendors understand that, they, that through standardization, they're going to make the pie so much bigger for their market that they might as well participate. But if it's not going to, then they should try to push us into, uh, uh, into selecting their solution as a standard. Nobody, we're not controlled by anyone. We are not for profit with no shareholders, which makes it possible to have an open international neutral process for developing standards and then convincing people that they are the best solutions for the problems they have. Got it. And, and so as you're going through that process, right, you know, t take the electrical outlet or any of the examples you used, th there's obviously multiple choices for you to choose from for the standard. So how do you come to the conclusion of which one is the best? Is there a group of uh, experts or, or kind of industry veterans? Um, is there some sort of uh, problem solving framework? Like, like what's the, the process that goes through to actually selecting the standard? There is, in fact, uh, a multi-level solution process that ends up with uh, experts uh, that are selected by the members, not by me. Uh, but the reality is it, the, the, uh, a good solution is going to rise to the top by itself. Sometimes, in about 5% of our cases, we've done this a thousand times in 30 years, sometimes there's more than one solution that comes about um, because a vendor doesn't care as much about having an open standard and, and wants, to salute, wants his or her solution the way it is. When that happens, we do something terrible, that is, we vote. And uh, it may not come up with the best possible solution, but it comes up with a solution that people can follow, people can trust, people can expect is actually going to be the standard. My great example, uh, although we had nothing to do with it, is the VHS tape. It's not nearly as good technically as the beta tape, uh, but it, it won. And how did it win? You have to ask, why did VHS win over beta if beta is technically better? And the answer is obvious. They went over, they went over the, the line to become ubiquitous. As soon as it becomes ubiquitous, it's not a standard that anyone can resist. That's got to be true for the standards that we develop as well, and we spend a lot of time making sure that it happens with our multi-step process that, that looks at the, all the technical experts in that field and then technical experts about lots of technologies. Nevertheless, you want that to happen fast. Our process takes an average of 17 months. That's not how long it should or can take. That's how long it has taken in the, uh, on average from the thousand times that we've done it in 30 years. The slowest by far was three years for UML 2.0. 54 companies participated though, so it was worth it. The fastest by far was nine months. That was the BPMN standard adopted, oh, about 10 years ago. But on average, it's 17 months. Not so bad for an industry that moves this fast. 
for sure. And, and then one of the things that you mentioned earlier that um, specifically around the standards that, that, again, just personally curious about is this idea of vertical market standards, right? So uh, uh, there's protocols, let's say, for example, the uh, electrical outlet. Obviously, you could plug all kinds of different things in there, um, whether it's a washing machine, a coffee, you know, et cetera. Uh, but also, it doesn't have to be just be electrical appliances. It could be everything from blow dryers, charging packs, et cetera. So it kind of goes across different industries. The vertical market standard, though, seems to be much more um, focused on very specific use cases within industries. What What's the difference there? Is it literally just that difference of protocols that uh, versus the industry standard, or is there something else? Yeah, good question. It's not really a difference in protocols. Uh, the protocols may remain the same. It's mostly a difference in vocabulary. Let's choose one protocol in which we're very active. That's healthcare standards. In healthcare standards, we're talking about blood pressure and we're talking about, oh, I don't know, I'm not a doc, but you know what I mean. Those, those, that terminology is specific to healthcare and it means that the healthcare, healthcare standards, which we've been developing for 15 years, are relevant to healthcare and probably not to any other any other vertical market, whether it's point of sale systems or telecommunication systems or transportation systems. If it is more relevant outside of healthcare, then we'll take it to, to our, our our platform technology group, which is responsible for technologies across platforms, across across domains, across vertical markets. If it but if it remains in its vertical market, it's relevant to a smaller group of companies but it's more relevant than anything else. It's something they have to follow because they've got to get interoperability and portability in their vertical market. Got it. Um, okay. And then th- this industrial internet consortium uh, that, that you're uh, a part of and, and leading an effort on, explain what exactly that is. So five years ago, almost six years ago now, we were approached by a, a group of companies that had been meeting on a monthly basis led by General Electric said, we've got to do something in, in industrial IoT. Consumer, uh, consumer IoT is what's really captured the public's imagination. A refrigerator that knows when you're out of milk. You know what? I can tell if I'm out of milk by opening the goddamn refrigerator. That's not the problem. <laughs> now, on top of it, there's no margins left because we're talking about consumer markets, white goods markets that have no, no, uh, no margins. But there's an enormous opportunity in industrial IoT, using IoT in manufacturing, smart buildings, smart cities, energy management, and precision agriculture. That's where the opportunity is. But five, six years ago, we realized there just was no expertise in that space. I, I pointed out to General Electric and a few others, you may have some of the world's best experts, but I've got them all because I've got two, 300 companies working together. So the point was to build IoT systems in industrial settings, in manufacturing settings, in smart building settings, and harvest best practices so we'd know who to hire, who to train, who to retrain, what to retrain, what are the standards required to make, make sure that next time we build this testbed, we can build it more responsibly faster. That's what we've been doing for, for these years, is building, uh, we now have 30 very large industrial testbeds. So I'll give you an example. Um, in, in Ireland, in the country of Ireland, the healthcare information about everyone who lives in Ireland is kept by the national government. Uh, but the ambulance service is run by the state, run by what we would call in the U.S. the state, the province, what's called in, in Ireland, the county. So County Cork wanted to provide better services to their customers as a smart city solution. Their customers are the citizens of that county, of course. So now when an ambulance is on its way to your house, if they know who they're picking up, they're going to download your the data for that person from the national resources in Dublin. 
and upload it directly into the ambulance so that the paramedics in the ambulance know exactly how to treat that customer that might have diabetes or Alzheimer's or allergies or whatever. Furthermore, whatever the paramedics do on the ambulance, if they have the time, they're going to upload the results back and they'll be shared with the national resources. So every hospital in the region was going to have that information so they can, they can better serve the patient when he or she arrives in the, in the emergency ward. If you've ever been in an emergency ward, I, I apologize. I'm sorry you have. But you know, you've seen paramedics screaming at the doctors and nurses, the nurses trying to come up with a stabilization plan and the doctors trying to come up with a treatment plan. That doesn't happen in County Cork anymore. If they know who they're going to pick up, the ambulance has already beamed the information back and chosen the correct hospital, whether it's a, uh, an emergency situation or not, a, hot, a heart attack or whatever. And, and uh, the health records of the person they're bringing to that hospital are already in the hospital and updated with whatever the paramedics have done in the, in the, in the ambulance. It's a, a small matter of knowing where the ambulances are, where the homes are, where the problem is, where the hospitals are, and making all that data available in real time to the hospitals, the doctors, and the ambulances. It's been a tremendously successful testbed, and we've learned a lot about how to make sure that not only are we providing useful data to the, the, the hospitals, but we're, we're keeping track of the concerns of the drivers of the ambulances, for example. For sure. And, and so when, when you guys go and you create this system, right, because it sounds awesome. And, and obviously, um, as it gets implemented, it, it's pretty obvious to see the value and, and um, that can be created here. But how do you go about getting the implementation or the adoption done? Right. So you create the standard and you say this is the way things should be done. Um, earlier, you said you, you can't really force people to do it. Um, so what is that kind of I'll call it a go to market strategy, but it's really just gaining adoption or implementation from uh, from the people who could benefit from it. Yeah, I, I want to make it clear again that we have no way in a capitalist society to force anyone to use any standard that we publish. But we, uh, getting adoption is to, is to point out again that the pie is going to be made great bigger for the vendors. And we're pointing out to the end users that their opportunity is to have choice for price, choice for quality choice for service, whatever. Therefore, it's valuable to have a standard. They're going to want a standard. So let's look at, at DLTs, for example, distributed ledger technologies. There is no standard for DLTs today. We are developing at OMG, and we will deliver next year, standards for interoperability, interoperability between DLTs and standards for the IOTA Tangle. That's something that, uh, that the market badly needs. There's no question they're going to adopt it because there's nothing else to adopt. That's why we're, we're quite happy to be developing standards in that sort of market. Where there is competition, it's a little bit more difficult. Got it. And, and so in those situations that have competition, is there any like major um, kind of uh, standards where there's been one or two that people could – or really two or three that people could choose from? And uh, you could tell us a story about how those kind of have played out in the past? Huh. That's a good question. I, I, I have to think about that one, though. Um, in, in, in most cases, our standards are adopted because they know that, the, that our standards are going to be adopted. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I'm not too worried about it. Um, I, I can't think of too many cases where, there's, where there have been multiple standards. Well, the, the, the JavaScript case is a case where we walked away because the ECMA, the European Computer Manufacturers Association, had developed its own JavaScript standard. And there was no need to uh, to create a uh, create one for ourselves, so we did, we stopped adopting a standard in that space. It would have been competitive, but competitive uselessly. And we don't do standards when somebody else is 
somebody else competent is already developing a standard. Okay. And then so, so let's talk about the Internet of Things, right? As you guys have, have started to look there, um, part of uh, the mandate or, or, or the attention has turned to um, DLT, distributed ledger technology. Maybe just talk a little bit about your view sitting um, and having been through a lot of these different standards and various verticals, how you guys see uh, DLT, Internet of Things, and, and some of the Internet um, consortium, et cetera, all, uh, all being related. You know, I, I was super excited when I first heard about DLTs a few years ago. And I said, this is the right thing for the IoT space and, and something we can do in the IIC, in the IIC. Um, because it's, it's, it, it's, it's a, uh, it, it's a deconfliction technology that doesn't have a central, a central, uh, force. For example, you don't need a bank for, for two people to do business together because they've got a DLT, a ledger technology that allows them to do it without, ha- without both trusting the bank, uh, bank to provide a, a single central ledger. That was the obvious case. In the IoT space, for example, we have, uh, test beds in the manufacturing space and we'd like the manufacturing devices uh, to be able to talk to something and, and, and know and, and know that uh, that they are trusted. The, uh, the DLT is an obvious way to know that we, we're going to trust that technology. Trustworthiness has become a major part of the way that we uh, develop the uh, test beds today. In fact, we have a paper out um, about a, a month ago on, on trustworthiness in IoT systems, and DLTs are the best way to provide it. But I spent uh, an enormous amount of time about two years ago looking at specific DLT technologies and said, these are all garbage. They just don't understand the real world. Um, uh, For example, I looked at one, not to be mentioned, and it has a transaction rate of seven transactions a second. I had just finished a project at at OMG with Swift, which does 700,000 transactions a second. But I downloaded it anyway just to see how it worked and discovered that the download was 200 to 250 gigabytes. Well, that's no way that's gonna work on a sensor in a CNC machine or, or a, a device in a manufacturing floor or, or uh, a sensor of checking for lights in, a, in an office in a, in a smart smart building or an ambulance, et cetera, et cetera. There had to be a better way, but there wasn't, so I gave up. I said, this DLT stuff is just not up to snuff yet. I can't use it. Through a friend, I met Dominic Schiener and then later David Sonstebu, I said, these guys have a solution that's better. These guys have a solution that's something like a 30 megabyte download and transaction rate in the millions of transactions a second. They've seen this. They've seen the DLT promise and they understand the real needs of real people. That's something I wanted to be involved in. But I found out that there was no standard for that, for what they were doing for that, for that DLT, the IOTA Tangle. So that's why OMG immediately got involved and develop, started to develop a standard in that space. Got it. And, and, and so one of the things that I'm very interested in is this idea of uh, a distributed letter technology, a blockchain, et cetera, being a uh, operating system for the Internet of Things, right? Allowing for true automation. Um, there's plenty of people who uh, either disagree that that's possible or to think that or don't think that's going to happen. But it just feels like uh, it's not possible to have true uh, automation and machine-to-machine transactions. If the asset of value, right, whether it's a stock, a bond, a currency, or a commodity, if that's not truly digital, right, if it's still an electronic QCIP, um, and then obviously if it's physical paper or something, it just isn't compatible, right? And I can't get over the fact that um, people don't see that. 
Um, do you agree with that or, or do you have some other uh, vision of the world and, and where we're going? No, I absolutely agree with that. No question. Um, first of all, you mentioned QCIP. I should mention OMG has a standard called FIGI, which is a better solution, uh, a more, more all-encompassing uh, solution to the problem, specifying not only uh, primary equities, but derivatives developed develop from those equities on multiple markets. You should take a look, FIGI. But those things are electronic, whether they're QCIP, Friggy, or anything else today. Nobody, you mean, a hundred years ago, you used to see people walking down Wall Street carrying sheaves of paper. That doesn't happen anymore. It all happens electronically. But it's everything should happen electronically. There's no reason we can't trade properties trade as, as we trade money today. And that's going to require a trustworthy way to do so. Um, our trustworthiness paper is worth looking at. It's better to understand that trustworthiness becomes the centerpiece of IoT systems. And you've got to deliver that in a way that you, obviously that you trust. For us, that means a DLT. If you can build a DLT that doesn't, that doesn't have a single point of failure, doesn't have a huge download constraint, and is fast enough to handle the, the transaction rates that we see in the real world today. For sure. And, and, and part of it, I guess, is you're not going to go to a world of, um, hey, the car's driving down the street and uh, pays the toll by driving over a sensor tomorrow, right? That's kind of a more complex. It involves much more investment in infrastructure, uh, both in the public and private sector. Uh, and, and so you can understand that the complexities are going to um, take time and, and significant dollar investments. But it sounds like you see this not only in those larger um, integrations of uh, technology and, and sensors and endpoints, but also on a much, much smaller scale and in a shorter time period as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, so, for, so I, I, I do pay tolls electronically every day, um, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and I do go through an electronic toll booth that I can hardly even see. And a box next to my mirror does pay the toll, and I've got to fill the box every now and then. But it's all electronic. And I think that's the point we're trying to make. Um, but making it smaller with, with smaller investment has got to be critical. So, for example, we have a test bed in, uh, in Germany, in Homburg, in southwestern Germany, uh, that's reinventing the way factories work. It, all it does is it tracks people, parts, work in progress, and tools, four things, everything inside the factory, and to see whether we can provide a safer factory for the human beings that work there and provide a more efficient factory for the people that, that own the factory. And the answer is obviously yes, but how exactly? I'll give you some examples. We know where the people are. We know where the robot arms are. We stop the robots when the people get near so they don't get hurt. And that's a lot better than the solution that's currently done, which is to put robots in cages so that people don't accidentally walk in and get hurt by the robot. You can do a lot better than that if you know where the robot arms are and you know where the people are. But the productivity message is even stronger. For example, we know where the tools are and we know what job you're supposed to do. We know where, the, where to send you to pick up the tool. There was a factory, this, this test bed is uh, managed by Bosch, by, by the way. They have a customer that has a factory um, from a company that I'm not supposed to mention, where the people in the factory were spending 46% of their time looking for the tool for the next job. 46% of their time, it's crazy. Manufacturing people are never surprised by that number, but I was, I was shocked. In that factory now, the system, which knows where the tools are, says, your next job is so-and-so, you have to do it in so-and-so in time. And the tool to do that job is 10 meters behind you on the left side because it knows where the tools are. Imagine the productivity that makes a difference when the people in the factory are spending 46% of their time looking for the next tool. Imagine it. 
but that means I've got to trust the system. I've got to trust that it knows what, what jobs need to be done. I've got to trust the tool, which knows where it is and is reporting its location. I've got to trust that it is one of the tools that I'm supposed to be looking out for. All those things require some element of trust, which might be handled with a central authority, but it's better handled with a DLT because I may not be able to get to the central authority and maybe down or worse and maybe hacked. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? The, the, the part that I keep going back to here is um, the best technologies in the world are, uh, in companies, are market expanding, right? So if you think of Uber uh, as one example where um, if you had looked at Uber early on and said, oh, it's a black car, okay, one market it could disrupt is, uh, you know, kind of limousines and black cars, a little bit bigger market and probably the extent of where most people thought was, oh, what if they could actually do something as crazy as disrupt the taxi business, right? And how big is that market? Well, what Uber actually ended up doing was not only disrupting limousines and taxis, but then it also expanded the total addressable market to include people who had cars, right? And now they just don't drive their cars when they're drunk and, and things like that. And so they, they expanded that market opportunity. It feels like the technology that you're talking about around Internet of Things and these protocols and the connectivity, if you look at it from a um, kind of an obvious perspective, there's some market cap that exists. But it feels like it is a technology that, that can drastically expand over time. And there's probably things that get created that we can't even imagine today um, or it would be very hard to imagine um, what, what could potentially out, uh, come out from this. Thing. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to try to imagine for you what I can. First of all, I should mention that Uber, Uber didn't just uh, trans, change the car, the car business. Uber changed the dispatch business. It did away with dispatch business. Taxis are not dispatched by human beings anymore. That's a pretty important change if you're in the dispatch business before. I think we're going to see those kinds of changes from, I, from IoT, too. Some of them I can, I can see now. For example, smart devices. Devices that are attached to the factory that, uh, that, that created them forever. Devices that automatically tell the manufacturer, I'm failing. You need to send them a new, a new one today because uh, some part is replacing. I, I think we're going to see a day when a, a toy in my house uh, has a failing part. I don't even know about it, but I have a replacement part in the mail uh, one day um, without asking for it because it knows and it's connected to the internet and the internet connects all those all these things and so people don't realize how important that is so i think smart devices are, are a major a major source of iot new product opportunities new business models but we're going to see others because that's one of the things we're trying to learn with our testbed program what are the new the new uh, business models can we discover what those business models are and how do we address those business models? Absolutely, it's going to expand the market, but nobody really knows how exactly. All I know is I can do a better business if I understand my business uh, better, understand the data that it's collecting and understand what to do with that data. I have several friends that are running companies that, uh, that collect um, data around cars, internet-connected vehicles, they're called. Not necessarily self-driving vehicles, just vehicles that understand their surroundings. Uh, my son, for example, is an expert in this area, Internet Connected Vehicles. Alexander Soli has written quite extensively on the subject. And it's amazing, but it requires that the vehicle knows where it is, knows what it is, and that you have trust in the data that it is reporting. And that's going to require a DLT because there's no way that every car on the planet is going to talk to a central authority ever. There's no central authority that can deal with that much that much bandwidth. For sure. What, what do you think is the biggest obstacle or uh, potential 
um, reason why this could all fail? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. I, I just answered that for, some, for someone else in the press earlier today. Uh, I'm supposed to answer um, the security. Everybody says it's security, and it's, it ain't security. I mean, obviously, I want my systems to be secure. I want it to be private, and I want to be able to trust the results that I get from censored, censored devices that are plugged into my devices. But that's not the problem today. We've discovered in our testbed program the biggest problem by far is finding the expertise to build these systems. And that is one of the things that we're collecting by building the actual systems is collecting expertise. And we're proud of that. Yeah, it, it, it's really, really interesting to start thinking about what, what's, uh, what's possible here. Um, you, you're also one of the other things you're doing is uh, you're on the supervisory bo uh, board um, as a member for, uh, for IOTA. Um, and they are, uh, they're sponsoring the uh, automation series that we're doing. Maybe talk a little bit as to what the, uh, the attraction was there and what you're doing at, in the role as a, a supervisory board member. Sure. I'm happy to. Uh, as I mentioned, um, um, about a year or two ago, I, I was introduced to uh, Dom Schiener. Uh, we had lunch in Frankfurt, and, and we've had a deep friendship ever since. I've also met, uh, well, I met on Skype, David Sunstabu, and I realized these two not only had a technology that could change the world, but a technology that was being intelligently handled, intelligently manipulated, problems out in front where people could see them, and problems being solved by a community that understands the technology and understands why to make the technology better. Uh, when Dom asked me to, uh, to join the Stiftungsrat, the supervisory board, I asked him what for. He said he basically was looking for gray hair, <laughs> looking for somebody with some experience running startup companies that could help them put together a useful company that would build that system, build it intelligently, and they are doing that today. I've been to uh, SumSum now this past summer. That's the uh, summer summit of the IOTA Foundation. And it's a team that's incredibly impressive that understands the technology that they're, they're building and why they're building it as much as, they're, as they understand their individual jobs. For sure. And, and then in terms of the supervisory board, um, maybe talk a little bit about exa exactly what that is and, and kind of why, um, you know, what, why you've joined. Sure. Um, uh, I don't want to get into the details of, of German corporate structure, but IOTA <laughs> Foundation is, in fact, a, a German foundation and therefore has two boards like all companies in Germany. Um, and I'm a member of the upper board that makes sure that the lower board actually understands what, uh, what they're doing and has members on, on that lower board that, that can manage the company on a day-to-day -day basis. So I'm not involved in the day-to-day -day management of the company. Um, I, I'm brought in sort of as an advisor to make sure that we have a, a strong board and a strong team to deliver uh, IOTA and the IOTA Tangle in intelligent form. Yeah. And, and so what is your thoughts on um, creating a standardized protocol around Internet of Things and how that is in line with or competes with a standard uh, currency or, or token, right? So what I mean by that is um, that there's the flow of information and then there is um, something that can be used of value as well. Um, are those two things that compete with each other or do you think they can be complementary? Maybe you think that they can be the same thing? Like how, like how do you think about that trade-off? Yeah, so some of the protocols already exist. Uh, it's not just protocols. Uh, standards look like either protocols or, uh, or languages or, or APIs, uh, programming interfaces. In this case, it's a set of programming interfaces, some protocols, and, and, uh, and, some, and the data model of the Tangle itself. 
um, there's not in those are not in contradiction. You can hear those those specific protocols to DLTs on top of standard protocols like Corba, DDS, MQTT, and and so forth. So I'm I'm not worried that they're competitive. I am worried that they're, they're designed intelligently, so they are likely to be adopted by vendors and users alike. Um, so the, the, there's there's a real reason to expect those standards to come out on top of the standards that we already have. What uh what, what's the thing that you're most excited about um, in the standard uh, in the standards um, kind of corner of the world? Is there is there some area that hasn't been conquered yet, or, or standard hasn't been issued that you're saying, hey, that this is uh a place that I think somebody should go look at? Oh, there are lots of places where standards need to be developed and haven't been developed yet. In the IoT space, digital twins um, and uh, the, the entire um, uh, maturity of, of uh, digital transformation needs to be addressed. Um, and the low-level um, standards for DLTs are obviously important, and that's why we're working on them and why we're working with the IOTA Foundation. Um, there are lots of areas uh, in verticals and in on the platform where standards would, would make the, the world an easier place to work with. Um, so I'm excited about all of them. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to let you get any of my uh, chairs mad at me. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, all right. Before, uh, before I finish up, I always uh, do some uh, rapid fire questions. Other than IOTA, is there a company in the blockchain or crypto space that, uh, that you're excited about? Oh, good question. Except um, I'm not going to mention any names. Uh, I, I just talked to a friend who's got a, a, a blockchain uh, startup in in New York that specializes in, in digitizing any 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 uh, resource at all. It could be anything that says you want to trade. Uh, I think that's the the right sort of thing you should do with whatever blockchain happens to win. Maybe one more than one blockchain technology. I don't care if it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or IDA or whatever. What is the one regulation that you would change in technology if you could wave a magic wand and change it? <laughs> There's very little regulation in technology. Um, I think more, some of the more amusing regulations that have been suggested uh, went by the wayside. Um, for example, when uh, when uh, 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 when I knew the uh, digital commissioner of the European Community, he proposed a standard, uh, a regulation standard that said that you would not be able to solve, you would not be able to ship any IoT device in the European Union unless it passed some security tests that he had in mind. It all sounds perfectly nice, except there were no security tests. And there's an obvious solution, which is don't call your product an IoT product anymore. Um, that regulation was killed before, was stillborn. It was killed before it started. And I think that most regulations in technology that look like that, they're, they come from people not really truly understanding the technology or how the technology affects society. Got it. What's the most important book you've ever read? You know, there are a lot of important books, um, and uh, I know I'm supposed to say the Bible, but I love to say Skunk Works by Ben Rich. Um, it, it really teaches you to think outside the box. It talks about the creation of the F-117A fighter, the SR-71 reconnaissance aircraft, and all sorts of lessons about how to build the aircraft differently, how to think about engineering and large engineering projects, how to sell things, and how to solve in unsolvable problems in ways that are just not that's not the way you'd think of. I just bought a copy from a friend of mine, and I buy copies for friends all the time just so they can understand thinking outside the box. Aliens, believer or non-believer? Uh, let me just say, uh, with this many stars and this many galaxies in, 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 the, in the universe, there's no chance, zero chance, that none of the other ones, none of the other planets around a star somewhere didn't create some form of life. 
Uh, unfortunately, we have the limitation of the speed of light, so I'm not sure we're ever going to meet any aliens. But are there are there other forms of life? Absolutely. I uh, I, I tend to agree with you and think that that is the most uh, logical um, and safest argument as to why aliens uh, are uh, very 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 likely to exist. So uh, so, so um, you you have a uh, an agreeer here in me. Um, I end each podcast letting somebody ask me a question. What, uh, what one question do you have for me? I love asking this question. I ask it all the time. Have you shorted Bitcoin yet? <laughs> <laughs> are, are you not a uh, Bitcoin believer? Not at $10,000. I'm not a Bitcoin believer. No. Um, one of the arguments about Bitcoin is there's nothing behind it, but there's nothing behind the U.S. dollar either. So that shouldn't matter. Well, excuse me, but what's the Federal Reserve? What's the European Bank of Credit? What is the great lady of Threadneedle Street? There are actually banks behind fiat currencies, and there's nothing behind Bitcoin. So there's no reason for the price to be so incredibly high. I'm not saying that this should be it should be valueless. That's a different argument. But the, the price should be incredibly high. I don't think it's going to hold. What is the price that you would go from non-believer to it's interesting? Oh, that's a hard question, but... Um, Certainly nowhere near where it is today. I'm, I'm thinking more like ten, twenty dollars. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, yeah, look, I, I think that uh, what you're talking about is like the infrastructure around the fiat um, currency. Uh, it's not just the infrastructure. Those banks actually defend their currencies. The U.S. Federal Reserve defends the dollar. Nobody defends Bitcoin. And uh, I think we're seeing an incredibly high price for Bitcoin simply because the demand is, is quite large and the, and the supply is quite small, which the economists tell us causes prices to go up. But when demand falls, I don't think supply is going to change. But when demand falls, we might see a tremendous change in value. So I will agree with you that Federal Reserve, other central banks uh, are uh, prone to defend their currency. That, that's absolutely a factual statement. What is your reaction if I made the argument that the miners in cohort with the difficulty adjustment built into the uh, Bitcoin blockchain algorithm defended the currency as well? They don't. They don't defend the currency. They, they defend, they defend, the, they defend the, the, the available supply of currency. Absolutely. But that's it. Whereas the Federal Reserve has, uh, I think it's four different controls over, over uh, monetary control. In, in the case of Bitcoin, you have only the difficulty. And it, it makes a difference to have fiscal control and monetary control. Uh, to say that it doesn't make a difference is, is just missing the fact of how, how fiat currency works. Yeah. And I guess the, the argument that people would have, right, because there, there's a lot of people, and I'm not even playing, there's a lot of people who I think would, would agree with you on that. Uh, around fiat currencies, monetary control, the, the role of central banks, etc. I, I guess the argument or one of the arguments that folks in the cryptocurrency community would have is that uh, if you are taking an action to defend your currency that ultimately manipulates it and over a long period of time hurts it, are you actually defending it or are you simply trading short-term benefit for long-term loss? Right. So an example would be uh, as you print more of the currency to defend it, you're really just debasing it at a faster rate 
right. and therefore continues to lose purchasing power over time, right? right. I guess it's the framework that some would use. Right. In other words, the argument you're making is, is, is fiscal versus monetary control, which every every central bank has to deal with all the time. That simply yeah. doesn't exist in the, in the cryptocurrency world. I'm not saying all cryptocurrency is bad. I, I'm, a, I'm a deep believer, for example, in, in uh, IOTA currency. Um, where it sits today is, I think, is uh, a reasonable price. Although it's hard to say what's reasonable when it's just about demand and supply. Um, but uh, comparing it in any, in any sense to fiat currency, I think, is a mistake. I got it. Look, I I, uh, I always appreciate people who uh, have an understanding of monetary policy, fiat currencies, and uh, and even though we disagree on is Bitcoin valuable or not, uh, you have a very logical argument. Right. It's the people, the people who uh, are frustrating, right, to, to talk to are the people who just say, uh, you know, it's stupid. It's a bubble. It's that type of stuff. Right. So, so I actually appreciate when people have um, a very well-defined position and reasoning as to why they believe what they believe, which I, I think that your position is uh, is fair, um, you know. Spoken, uh, spoken like a good Bitcoin investor. <laughs> well, 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 here's look. It, it's uh, it, there's a balance, right? It is. Um, I think contrary to popular belief, I am actually not uh, at all emotional um, about Bitcoin uh, in terms of like a religious zealot type um, emotion. It to me is just much more um, a belief in uh, the fact that people, like you, you said, it, right? It's a supply and demand. Uh, type equation. And I have a thesis on why demand will continue to increase over a long period of time. Right. And that's really where my belief um, and comfort, right. And trust in uh, storing wealth there comes from. And, and it literally is just that people are going to actually trust and transparent algorithm and software with their wealth and, and the monetary policy decisions rather than trust humans. Yeah, and- no, I, I, I understand that argument, and I have respect for that argument as well. Um, I, I don't entirely agree. I think there are other places to store money that have the same problem, by the way. Gold is the obvious case. I mean, it has fluctuated in my lifetime between $100 an ounce, a troy ounce, and a couple thousand dollars a troy ounce, um, because there's nothing backing it either. And the intrinsic value of gold is pretty low, right? And it's just that it's a good, it's the best conductor. But other than that, it's not very interesting. Diamonds, um, molybdenum, there are a lot of cases where, where metals and, and minerals are, are priced at much higher than their intrinsic values. So I understand the argument. It's a reasonable argument. It's simply not the, the one that I'm, I'm following today. <laughs> I, I, uh, I hear you, man. Um, all right, listen, th- this is super fun. I-, I really appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to come talk for about 45 minutes or so. Um, I-, I think that people will get a ton out of this. Uh, and y- you've had a, a long storied career and, and pushed the pace on, uh, on standards across a whole bunch of uh, industries. So I really appreciate uh, you taking time to kind of give us an insight into your world. Um, and then we'll have to do it again in the future as, uh, as you continue to establish these, uh, these standards in various industries over, uh, over the years to come. Looking forward to it. Thanks for taking the time. Hey everyone, Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. 
I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.